if you're trying to do this on a small screen and there's a lot of questions to answer and a lot of boxes to fill out and you have 86-year-old thumbs, good luck. Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, January 28th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Shafali Luthra of the 19th. Hi there. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. So we have made it through the first week of the Biden administration, and they are off to a pretty fast start. Um, The new president has been devoting each day this week to a different topic. Today is Health Day. As we tape, we don't know everything he's going to do, but we do know a lot of things. For example, he's going to reopen healthcare.gov for a new round of open enrollment, something that Democrats and the insurance industry urged the Trump administration to do way back last summer, but they ended up not doing that. Why is it important now? We just had an open enrollment. I think this is important because, you know, it's definitely drawing a comparison with the previous administration. There were a lot of, you know, push as... People were losing their health insurance coverage by Democrats throughout the pandemic, often losing their health insurance because they were losing their employment to open a special enrollment period. Republicans had sort of countered losing your job and your job-based health insurance. That triggers your own special enrollment period. You can still sign up for healthcare.gov coverage. So I think one thing that'll be interesting to see is like how much does this special enrollment boost enrollment? Because as you said, we just came off of the open enrollment period. People have been able to sign up for this coverage. A lot of people who, you know, are losing their income might have also been eligible for Medicaid or another health insurance program, maybe gone on a spouse's coverage. So we'll see what happens. But I think that this is an important talking point for the administration to kind of take since this is something that Democrats have been pushing for for so much of the last year. Also, the Trump administration had cut almost to the bone um, outreach and assistance for people. It's confusing to sign up for healthcare.gov, even if you know what you're doing. Um, And there had been a fairly robust program of people and, you know, ways to get help that was all eliminated. But one presumes that I actually I, I have read that there is actually leftover money so they can actually just restart some of this. It's not clear to me whether they will. I don't think it says in the press release, but that would obviously be a boost to however many people signed up during the last open enrollment period, right? They actually brought back, the Biden administration has brought back um, one of the Obama era officials who did a lot of the outreach and marketing. Um, Some of it you can do free, social media and unpaid media, as government officials talk about this, do outreach. Some of it you need money for if you're going to do, you know, radio ads and so forth or online ads. But they're calling this a special enrollment period, but we're, we don't really know yet who it covers. Is it only someone who lost a job? This is a 12-week enrollment season. The insurers that I've spoken to, what I've heard from the industry is they don't really regard this as a, quote, special enrollment period. They regard this as a just new open enrollment period. It looks pretty broad from what we're seeing but so it's, far. But it's, it's twice as long as the open enrollment period that we it's just three had. three months. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of overlaps with tax season. In fact, it might overlap with tax season because they've just changed tax season again, although, um, which is something that some advocates had always wanted when the mandate penalty was in effect. But no, it was also important because one of the, what they said your, at the time, there were a lot of people who, who agitated for having open enrollment during tax season because people were more likely to have the money to be able to pay their premiums with their tax refunds than they were right around Christmas when they were busy buying presents. So yeah, this could, this will be a good natural experiment for whether you actually get more more signups during tax season, although there are a lot of confounding variables. And as Mel, um, as Mel pointed out, people were eligible. If you lost your job-based insurance or your family member's job-based insurance during the economic crash that we've seen over the last year, you were in fact eligible. But there wasn't a lot of messaging or explanation or public, hey, you can still get covered. That We didn't hear that. Trump didn't do a big special enrollment period, although he was encouraged to. The The individual eligibility wasn't clearly understood, and it was somewhat cumbersome. So this is should be a streamlined, as streamlined as buying insurance could ever be, but this should be a, a simpler process that reaches more people with some awareness. Two weeks from now is tough for some of the plans because it's, you know, they have to deal with the contracts and the insurers and the provider. They have to tinker with some stuff. I'm not sure if they'll be happy about the two weeks notice, but they've also known this was coming. So everybody and- gets paid in Washington to complain. But, you know, <laughs> as I said this morning, it's an EO for an OE. <laughs> You know, it's an executive order for an open enrollment, which only people who listen to this podcast would think was funny. Absolutely. A great tweet. Um, Well, also today, President Biden seems likely to at least start to unwind some of the Trump administration's actions on Medicaid. Um, The folks I've been talking to about undoing Trump policies seem to think this is among the most time urgent because the work requirement cases right now before the Supreme Court and now former CMS administrator Seema Verma did her best at the very end of the administration to try to tie the Biden administration's hands on not just work requirements, but other Medicaid waivers. Um, how important is undoing sort of the what's been done to Medicaid and making Medicaid easier to get? Uh, how important is that to the Biden health agenda? It doesn't get talked about very much. The Biden health agenda is about expanding access to health insurance, making it easier for people to access and get health insurance. Medicaid work requirements Add red tape, they make it more difficult for people who are eligible for Medicaid to get that. The fact that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this case definitely puts pressure on the Biden administration to act on this sooner than maybe they otherwise would have. Um, you know, I think g- getting Merrick Garland in his AG probably, you know, ha- puts some pressure on that because they also have to deal with the fact that the Supreme Court is hearing this case regardless. So they're going to need to maneuver around and work around with the fact that this case is pending sometime this year. But yeah, I think this is definitely, you know, important. I think we'll also see the administration, Democrats on the Hill working to try to get states that haven't expanded Medicaid to try to incentivize states to do so. There's a chance that some of the remaining states that can try to expand Medicaid through ballot initiative could do that in this year or in the future. So I think that Medicaid will and putting the focus on making it easier for people to get it if they are eligible is, you know, going to be a pretty key tenant of the Biden health agenda. The two things I'm thinking is one is we sort of saw in the past four years that Medicaid is a lot more popular now than it was under the Obama administration. I think that sort of changes the the politics around relying on Medicaid as a lever for for expanding access to coverage. But the other thing- A really unintended consequence of the repeal and replace effort. The other thing that I think is worth noting in the Supreme Court case sort of hints at that, right, is these changes are going to take time. And there will be complexities that, that we just don't really understand that will complicate efforts to to do this in a way that quickly has impact for real people. I, I think Mel you know, mentioned the, the state 
uh, ballot initiatives. And it's really important to remember that it's these these were in red states that hadn't expanded. These were states where the governor and or the legislature had been really resistant. And these are the states where every single one of them has passed, some by pretty large margins, some closer. So there's there there is not just a popularity um, of Medicaid, but there's, you know, conservative voters have said, we actually think expansion is a good thing. So we, we really have seen two pretty significant changes, even among conservative voters who are anti-Obamacare. We have certainly seen a change in public attitudes toward pre-existing conditions that people should be covered. And we've seen an, a change in attitude toward Medicaid and, and healthcare for, for lower income people. If you ask conservative voters, do you like Obamacare? They say, hell no. So these two very core pieces of it have permeated how Americans look at health care. And, and I think that's a really significant and underappreciated change. There's efforts to do ballot initiatives in, I guess it's the last three states where that's possible, which includes Florida, but it doesn't include Texas and Georgia, I guess, are the two biggest, Texas, Georgia, and Florida being the three biggest holdout states that have not expanded Medicaid. Um, well, finally, uh, on the uh, executive order list, we're expecting the president to once again end the so-called Mexico City policy, which bars funding to international groups that perform or even support abortion. This is a policy first implemented by President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, and it's been either reinstated or reversed every time the White House has changed parties since, although President Trump not only reinstated it, but expanded it to groups beyond just International Family Planning Group to all other global health groups. Opponents of the policy say it's not only deprived women of needed contraceptive services, but it's also hurt groups that offer other types of health services, including those for people with AIDS and HIV. Usually this is not such a big deal. It's sort of for the the base, the either anti-abortion or abortion rights-based, depending on who's doing it. But Republicans seem to be taking serious aim at this as the parties have gotten ever more polarized over abortion. Is this going to be the harbinger of more abortion fights to come this year? Is this, you know, the the, the abortion rights groups are going to lean hard on the Biden administration to be even, you know, more abortion rights supporting than President Obama was and Republicans. And there are still a lot of Democrats who don't like abortion are going to lean back just as hard. I think un- undoubtedly abortion is just going to be a much bigger topic in the next year. I think the Supreme Court has made that really impossible to ignore. And and with regard to the Mexico City policy, especially, right, there's a lot more push from reproductive health advocates and from a lot of the global health groups to pass legislation that would stop this from being the sort of thing that can change every four to eight years. Because I've talked to a good number of them. And what they always say is that just the unpredictability of knowing what you'll be able to do with your government money makes it so much harder to do any kind of meaningful global health work. And it's going to take months even for this change to take effect because it's waiting for for their contracts to be up for change or renewal. And I think we will see a lot more political attention, not just on this policy, but on larger fights over abortion access, both on the national and state level. And and I should add that this executive order is also expected to start the process of unwinding the regulations um, the, uh, uh, domestically that prevent Planned Parenthood from participating in the federal family planning program. Um, that's going to be a long slog because there's a whole lot of policy that's going to take, again, a long time to undo. Is this just sort of where we are, that each side is going to try and make it as hard for the other to, to undo which direction they want to go. I mean, that's what it seems like, right? Just especially if it is difficult to pass laws in Congress 
we're going to see the executive, and we saw that in the past four years, just do all within its power to to shape what reproductive health discourse looks like in this country. Well, speaking of abortion fights, Senate Republicans are taking increasing aim at HHS Secretary-designate Javier Becerra, the current Attorney General of California, uh, despite his two decades as kind of a moderate on the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, As Attorney General, he's been extremely active, challenging reproductive health policy changes made by the Trump administration, particularly in a so far losing effort to prevent Planned Parenthood from getting kicked out of the federal family planning program. They're also going after his support for Medicare for All which is kind of a prerequisite for holding office as a California Democrat. Is his nomination really in any danger? And what's taking so long? You would think that HHS would be sort of a priority cabinet pick when we're in the middle of a pandemic that this administration has made its top priority. I think a couple of things are going on. Um, I think Republicans will drag out and attack Becerra as much as they can on the issues that you raised. At the end of the day, not only do the Democrats have 51 votes, they will probably pick up some Republicans. It's really hard to stop someone who served alongside them in Congress for 25 years, um, the first Latino to be appointed to this position. People say he's not a healthcare guy. Actually, you know, those of us who covered him in Congress for many years, he understands an awful lot about healthcare. He knows way more about healthcare than a lot of previous HHS uh, secretaries who have mostly been governors. Yeah, I mean, he's, he he was on the Ways and Means Subcommittee on Health. They deal with all this payment and very technical issues, you know. Is it his only passion in life? No, he had other issues that we identify him with. But also as California's attorney general, he made health care a super priority of his going after, you know, antitrust cases, being the leader on the ACA defense against the tech in the Texas case that the conservative state's trying to get, to get rid of it. So he is steeped in health care. But also, you know, Congress has still been sorting out who was in charge. I mean, McConnell and Schumer had not really settled everything until a couple of days ago. The Democrats weren't really running the committees, I think, just 48 hours. And it's still sort of a little murky on what's happening. There still is no organizing resolution, which means there still still is no committee chair for the committees where the chairman was not already there. They've gotten some (laughs) national security things, secretaries through. They've gotten Yellen through. Um, for Treasury and everything else is moving a little bit more slowly. Um, Senate Finance, which we'll have to confirm, Becerra is also doing some of the Treasury appointments. It's the same committee. They did Yellen first. Um, The other thing is because these nominations drag out, and this is one reason we have not yet seen an FDA or a CMS nominee, it takes time in the best of circumstances to get people confirmed. We are not in the best of circumstances. Um, there is technical things like vetting and so forth that, you know, there were a lot of abnormal things about this transition, not knowing who was in charge of the Senate, et cetera. But the people in the White House don't need to be confirmed. And we have seen the coronavirus response centered in the White House. And they are already at work. You know, they might not have their emails working. They may not have their Zoom video audio working, as we all learned yesterday. But, you know, they are working. Yeah, that, that was a little painful. <laughs> Extremely. Um, but they are working on the vaccines. You know, they definitely are working on the vaccines. Getting that out is the top priority. And they are working on that and the, and the related things. We should see some more messaging. We should see technical sign up improvements, although that's a lot of it is what's going wrong at the state. So, Is anybody confirmed? No. Are people on the job? 
Yes. And, and that's a tendency we have seen in, in recent years, more and more of these things are done outside the confirmation process. Given the emergency, the top priority right now is vaccines. The White House people are handling it. And I'm sure Becerra must be part of conversations. And, you know, I know he is. I'm still kind of baffled that there's no CMM, more, more so than FDA, where Janet Woodcock, who's, you know, acting has been there sort of forever. And, you know, there, I think she can clearly run the place, but there, there's basically nobody home at CMS. Um, we know we get a new rumor every day. All of us are hitting them. It's so-and-so any minute. And it, it isn't. Um, I, I don't think they're totally settled on that. I think we are all hearing names and we know who the leading candidates are. If they were really settled and know who they wanted, we would know by now. So I think there's still some figuring out who is actually the best person. And there's politics and who's lobbying for who and who gets somebody mad at them in that process and who's the best person to get along. You know, we saw a really dysfunctional relationship between H. HHS and CMS in the prior administration. It was a soap opera. Um, we talked about it a lot on yes. the podcast. So I think they want to make sure there's people who can remember that they are, in fact, on <laughs> the same team. I, I don't know that we'll see it right away. Um, at first, I was told we'd see FDA before we see CMS. Then I was told we'd see CMS before FDA. I don't think it's the absolute top priority. Um, I think it's a priority, but I don't necessarily think we're going to see it this week or next. The top priority in Congress uh, is uh, the the president's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, the American Rescue Plan, which I never remember the name. And I noticed poor Chuck Schumer couldn't remember it either on TV the other night. Uh, If you watch cable news, and I hope no one watches as much cable news as I do, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it would be faster if the Democrats just give up on trying to win Republican votes and just pass it using budget reconciliation which can't be filibustered in the Senate and only requires a simple majority to pass, except people forget that you can't do budget reconciliation without a federal budget resolution to reconcile. That's what the reconciliation part is for. So they would have to do that first. And even on a fast track, that takes time. So it certainly looks like Congress is gearing up to do it anyway. Um, Are they not going to negotiate this out? And and Mel, you have some, some breaking news that makes even that complicated. Yeah, you know, I think that it's sort of interesting. The administration and Democrats are saying that they want to continue bipartisan negotiations. They want to keep that path open. But at the same time, they clearly are signaling that they're not very confident that that's going to be successful because they're also saying they're going to start the budget reconciliation process as soon as next week. So the House and Senate budget chairs are both saying, you know, they want to take up and pass a budget resolution next week. And doing that would start the whole process before the Senate impeachment trial of former President Trump begins to kind of get that ball moving as that would send the reconciliation instructions to the committees that would be working on this bill. But as of last night, Senator Mark Warner, Democrat of Virginia, is now in quarantine. So that could make it even more difficult for the Senate Democrats who would need 51 votes with Vice President Kamala Harris to pass this. So, you know, I think I'm not saying that it's definite that this is not going to happen. Dates are always sort of unclear with quarantine. The House has figured out various ways to have members who are quarantining be able to vote. Um, We'll see if the Senate that has been, you know, more resistant to ideas like proxy voting would do that. But it definitely shows, you know, how thin the majority in the Senate is and how really any challenge could make it really difficult for them to, you know, advance sort of a party line priorities, which also might be some of the reason why President Biden and some Democrats might be more inclined to 
try for bipartisan negotiations. Yeah, I'm, th- we should also point out, because I think a lot of people haven't, that the reason they can do this right now, they can do a budget resolution just basically for this bill, is because they the Congress didn't do a budget last year. So we're still in fiscal 2021. Normally, uh, you know, in February, you would be starting the process for fiscal 2022, which starts on October 1st. Um, and they can do another budget resolution for that and another reconciliation bill for that, actually. You can do two. You can do a tax one and a spending one. Actually, you could do three. You could do a tax one, a spending one, and one for the debt ceiling, um, that, according to the budget law. But right now, what they're trying to do is just pick up last year's undone budget resolution, do it real quick, um, and then start the, the reconciliation process. But that, uh, you know, doing the budget resolution yeah, you can do it in a week. And remember, Repub- that's exactly what Republicans did in 2017 when they were trying to, to use budget reconciliation to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Um, but they had an earlier start. They actually did their budget resolution before Trump was even inaugurated because they knew they were in charge. So as soon as Congress started on January 3rd or 4th or whenever it was in 2017, they started right away and they had that budget on the floor, I think, you know, the, the, the second week of January. So the, the Democrats obviously... For reasons that we've just discussed, they didn't know who was going to be in charge, um, are a little bit behind. And it's it's I am still dubious as to which would take longer trying to actually negotiate a couple of Republican votes or I guess they need more than a couple if they're not going to nuke the filibuster or try to go through the entire reconciliation process on an abbreviated basis. It's going to be either way. I suspect that this is going to take longer than people think. Another thing to you know keep an eye on and watch that's gotten some discussion is whether or not to split Biden's proposal into two different packages, you know, get a bipartisan bill. There's a lot of bipartisan support for more money for vaccine distribution and manufacturing, you know, maybe some, you know, some of the things that do unite the two parties and then do the bigger bill with sort of more of the Democratic priorities through budget reconciliation. The Biden administration this morning, you know, is saying that is not the approach we're doing, but it is something that is being talked about getting more steam. And it's definitely still on the table as a possibility. I pointed out in 2009, when they were doing the Affordable Care Act, they were never, they wanted it to be bipartisan and they were never planning to do it through reconciliation. But Rahm Emanuel insisted that they do a budget resolution with reconciliation instructions for the Affordable Care Act just in case they needed it. And sure enough, you know, five months later, when Ted Kennedy's seat was filled by Scott Brown, a Republican, and they lost their 60 votes in the Senate, they needed it. So, I mean, that's part of it is I think they're calling the Republicans bluff, and part of it is it's good to have a plan B. In, just in case. So I think it's a combination. All right, well, let's let's talk about the vaccine situation. Even before there's money for the COVID effort, there's still a lot of news here. Um, President Biden announced Tuesday afternoon that the federal government is moving to acquire another 200 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So even before the anticipated approval of the one-shot J&J vaccine, that purchase would be enough to vaccinate every American over the age of 16, which is the current threshold for which they are approved. Um, that will take months, though, as Andy Slavitt told us yesterday on their on the, the COVID call. Meanwhile, the administration says it can increase vaccine doses going to the states by 16% starting next week. I'm confused. Are all those doses coming from getting an extra dose out of each vial uh, of the Pfizer vaccine? And do they have enough of those special syringes that they need to get that extra dose out of that vial? Or are those doses coming from someplace else? 
I think that that 10 million is new doses because they're talking about Moderna. So I think that the numbers for the next couple of weeks that they're promising to the states, that is new vaccine coming from factories to states. And the vial isn't as much of an issue because Moderna, that's the Pfizer problem, not a Moderna problem. So I think that both things are happening. I think they're you know, on their way to solving this really obscure base, low dead space syringes. syringe problem. So they can get all six doses out of the Pfizer. That's the stuff that's already been sent to the states or on their way to the states or like, who knows, like what they're trying to figure out where things are. And then the, the next couple of weeks, I think we're mostly seeing um, more Moderna coming in, um, which leaves me wondering what's happening to the people who need the second dose of Pfizer. But maybe there is enough in the states now for that or that, that that'll be an announcement soon. I, I don't have an answer to that. I think one thing that was interesting and important when Andy Slavitt spoke yesterday, he said, this is our plan with Moderna and Pfizer, the two vaccines we have. In other words, you know, if Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca or down the road, and I think it's, you know, there are others um, six months from now, if they come on board and J&J could come on board within, you know, late, A few late weeks. This winter, yeah. um, that would make it better and easier. But they said this is their plan with the two. We know we have newer vaccines, additional vaccines will speed things up and increase access. And in, in the case of Johnson & Johnson, which is one dose and easier to ship and store, uh, the logistics become easier. But they're not counting on that. So when we look at, you know, another six months or so, I won't say it's the worst case scenario because lots of things can go wrong. I mean, there can be manufacturing. We've seen everything has gone wrong. So the only thing that hasn't gone wrong is we have vaccines in less than a year. That's a big deal. But there's a lot of things can still go wrong in production, shipping, distribution, trust, logistics, storage, strange pharmacists in the middle of the night, defrosting things illegally. I mean, it's not a certainty that we'll get this done by the end of the summer. On the other hand, with new vaccines, we could get it done faster. And J&J has said that they are hoping to put out their results early next week. Assuming that's Monday or Tuesday could mean more doses, at least getting emergency use authorization sometime in February, which which would be really meaningful, as, as Joanne sort of mentioned. Um, I think the other thing that like I keep thinking about is KFF put up polling yesterday that showed that right almost a majority of Americans feel great about taking a vaccine. That means a majority of Americans don't feel great about taking the vaccine. And that feels like a really big hill to climb that we should be hearing a lot more about. You know, the problem is we can all see right now is that there are more people who want the vaccine than there are vaccine doses. But it is also clear, as Shafali says, that we have the opposite problem. The Washington Post reported this week that a, quote, large percentage of nursing home workers in Virginia, Maryland and Washington, D.C. declined to take the vaccine when it was offered. They called around to some other states, found that was the same there. In some cases, it was between 60 and 80 percent said no. Many of them, mostly people of color, cited ongoing mistrust to the medical profession in general and the fact that they didn't want to be among the first to get a vaccine that still seems um, untested to them. Plus, my KHN colleague Liz Zabo had a very disturbing story this week about anti-vaccination groups pushing sometimes false information about people who've had bad reactions to the vaccine. Even if we do have enough vaccine and presumably we will at some point, uh, isn't there a danger that we won't be able to get to herd immunity if we can't fully address vaccine hesitancy? We need to spend a lot of time working both on the national level and within communities, talking using different messages for different groups and trusted members of communities to hear out people's concerns and then talk to them about why the benefits of vaccination outweigh those concerns. That's really difficult. And I cannot oversell how important I think it is. It was really shocking to me how little it was being discussed by the previous administration. And I, it is something that I just hope 
is talked about much more in the coming weeks. Well, there were vaccine hesitant people in the previous administration. So, I mean, which didn't help. And Trump had, you know, from time to time been, you know, tried to sort of play to the to the anti-vax cause because those are a piece, some of them are a piece of his base. Interestingly, the anti-vaxxers tend to run the, the political spectrum from, you know, very conservative to very liberal. But there's certainly a number of them on the very conservative, we don't trust science, we don't trust government. You know, obviously... This is something that has to be done on an extremely, you know, micro local level. But I would think that the Biden, I mean, Biden administration obviously knows that. I mean, are we going to see a lot more efforts to to try to to sort of, you know, get get down way down to the grassroots to convince people that it's important and safe to get this vaccine? I mean, I've done some reporting on this and you need a whole lot of different kinds of messaging. You do need national consistent messaging. You know, having Kamala Harris or somebody like that get hers on TV and talk about it is important. It's not enough, but it's important. So you need nationally consistent messaging. You need community-focused messaging. You need different messaging for the rural white person who's afraid of the vaccines and is not so convinced this virus exists, right? That's And that's real. There's a high level of hesitancy among rural whites. You need a different message for these nursing home workers. I mean, to, to, when I started reading about the high levels of, of vaccine refusal among nursing home workers, Outside of the ER and the ICU, who has seen more death? It's the nursing homes, not just their patients, but also their co-workers. Uh, they have become sick and some have died and they're afraid of this thing. So there's really been a huge failure to anticipate and address those fears. Within the healthcare system, you need political people. You probably need certain celebrities targeted at certain communities. You need local churches. You need the community centers. You need the community colleges. You need athletes. You need the people that you trust. And it's not just a better video from the CDC on YouTube. It's got to be people who you know and trust. You don't have to know them personally. You might know your church leaders personally. You, your local athlete star, you may not know personally, but you have a confidence in. And, you know, the idea that we need celebrities is a little bit crazy, but it's it's a fact. We do. I mean, you know, as Julie knows, I wrote about polio a couple of months ago, and one of the celebrities they used to great effect was Elvis. So we need Instagram influencers for vaccines. Right. And, and and you need different things for older people than you do younger people. You need different languages. You need radio for the older people. You need Instagram for TikTok, whatever, for the younger people. And we're not seeing any of it. Even as, you know, I think all of us have done reporting on this over the last couple of months. And we all talked to state officials saying, oh, yeah, we're on it. And they weren't. So one thing that I think is really interesting is the Biden administration's emphasis that they've at least indicated a couple of times, community pharmacies which are different, right, from your Walgreens and CBS, And those can be very trusted messengers. And I hope that that is a signal of, of more creative thinking about trying to sort of understand who are the more local authority figures who would be more trusted than, than sort of a distant national politician in Washington. That's what West Virginia did to great effect. Well, people go to pharmacies for vaccination, particularly Medicare. I mean, people get their flu shots in pharmacies and grocery stores. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree that you have to get all the players and you need the community, but I don't think somebody, I mean, people go to the chains. People are very used to going to the chains for their annual flu shots, for their annual uh, older people who need the pneumonia shots, shingle shots. That's all done in pharmacies. So is pharmacies the answer? No. Is pharmacies a component? Yeah. 
One of the things that's confusing people now is that there are so many different places to go and apparently you have to get on lists separately and try to make appointments separately. And, you know, here in in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live, it opened to 65 and up this week. And it was just a giant disaster because there were so many different options and different lists and people were on hold and people couldn't get appointments. And now and the people who were over 75 and hadn't gotten, you know, appointments yet couldn't get appointments because they were all being taken by the people who were over 65. And, you know, one would think that, I mean, yes, this needs to be done locally. It's a local thing. But you would think that the federal government might have some guidance for helping figure out the logistics of getting people signed up and appointments because it's a mess. You know, Florida is using Eventbrite, which most older which people might work better than cannot half of navigate. These websites. I mean, I've been on a bunch of them. They're not easy to use. I mean, first of all, you need a computer. I mean, I wrote about this the other night, like in New Jersey, where I am at the moment, I'm with my mom for part of the winter and she's 86 and we have been dealing with this. And um, one of the websites I got on with her, she got on and I looked, she is computer literate. She's smart mommy. It said, if you don't have a computer, dial 211. Well, how, you know, if you don't have a computer, you're not going to see the website that's telling you to call 211. It was 911. I might have just misspoken. It was 211. And I, I, before anyone starts calling 211, I have no idea if that works outside of New Jersey. And frankly, I'm not so sure if it works in New Jersey. So don't try. Um, you know, she was on three different sites. She said she didn't need to be on all these sites. She was on one. And I said, no, you need to get on all of them. And the one she said she didn't need was the one that we actually got her first appointment through. And But now we can't get her second appointment. If you're trying to do this on a small screen and there's a lot of questions to answer and a lot of boxes to fill out and you have 86-year-old thumbs, good luck. She had 80 seconds to make the appointment when it finally and, and there were all sorts of glitches. She told her she had to drive 100 miles, and then it gave her a place that was nine miles. And, and this is, you know, we're in New Jersey where there's a Democratic governor who's pretty engaged in this, and it's still a mess. You know, I would imagine it'll be less of a mess in a couple of more weeks. But right now, no. If I weren't here, I don't think she would have gotten the, the uh, appointment. And it took hours. All right. Well, we will definitely talk about this more next week. So that is the news. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Mel, why don't you go first this week? So my extra credit for this week is a New York Times story. Biden is vowing to reopen schools quickly. It won't be easy by Dana Goldstein. I think this is something we've seen a lot of conversation about over the past week. I know I've been talking to people about this issue of sort of the push to reopen schools in 100 days. There were a couple of studies that came out that showed, you know, schools are generally safe. There's very low levels of transmission in the classroom. And at the same time, across the country, we're seeing a lot of school districts announce that for various reasons, they actually aren't reopening. A lot of schools were supposed to reopen, you know, in the last couple of weeks after taking time remotely around the holidays. And I think this is just going to be a really big challenge. And the, the longer sort of schools remain closed, almost the harder it gets to reopen them again. You know, there's been talk about, like, could this even stretch into the next academic year if the vaccine doesn't go as quickly? I think it's, you know, a really big problem. And it's something that, you know, the Biden administration has made a priority. And it will be really interesting to sort of see how they come out and really try to push these schools to open. I think they're going to need to take a stronger stance than they've taken thus far. It's a mess. Shivali. I am going to be self-interested. And my extra credit is a story that my colleague Shabeli Karazana and I wrote for the 19th. It is undocumented women are among the most vulnerable to COVID. Vaccinating them will be difficult. And we sort of talked about the fact that immigrant workers, but especially undocumented ones and women have 
played really critical frontline roles in the past year, right? A lot of them are in home care. A lot of them are in meatpacking and food processing. A lot are in domestic labor, but they face these really significant structural barriers toward getting vaccinations, whether that comes from sort of systemic poverty-related issues, whether it comes from fear of the government because of ICE, and the fact that the Biden administration has talked about making sure vaccines are open to people regardless of documentation, but communicating that after the past four years will be very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Joanne. I actually chose a book review on the theory that this is a really cool book that most of us and our listeners probably won't, may not have time to read until long after this pandemic is over. The review is in The New Yorker by Casey Sipp, and the book is The Blackwell Sisters and the Harrowing History of Modern Medicine. And in case you thought that these two sisters, who were the number one and number three, the two, two out of the three first woman doctors in the United States, were these progressive heroines, boy, um, they were not feminists. They were actually quite hostile to feminism. The germ theory of disease transmission was just sort of emerging then. They were quite skeptical. They didn't trust vaccines in particular. And they also thought that a lot of the disease among the poor people they were treating, because they were relegated to having to treat the indigent as women, they thought a lot of their disease came from sort of their moral turpitude and, and bad morals. On the other hand, the clinic they found 100 years ago to treat poor women still exists. It's now part of Columbia Presbyterian. So um, they may not have been what we with our modern sensibilities might have expected, but they last, they did leave an enduring legacy. But I'm not sure I would have liked them. <laughs> History moves in interesting ways. Uh, my story is from Stat News by the legendary science reporter Sharon Begley. It's called, But I Never Smoked, a Growing Share of Lung Cancer Cases is Turning Up in an Unexpected Population. That unexpected population is women who never smoked, and Sharon, who never smoked herself, filed that story five days before she died of complications of lung cancer at age 64. The story, however, is not first person. There's not a single word of self-pity. Rather, it's a serious story about how perhaps the medical community should be paying more attention to screening women who have never smoked for lung cancer. And it includes this ominous quote from a researcher from Mount Sinai, if lung cancer in never smokers were a separate entity, it would be in the top 10 cancers in the U.S. for both incidence and mortality. Thank you, Sharon. You taught me a lot. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. Shivali. At Shivali L. Joanne at Joanne Cannon. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>